0: Welcome to the Beers podcast, Violin Stories. This is a series about the violin and its siblings, the viola and cello, and those who play them. My name is Simon Morris, and in each episode I, or one of my colleagues, will interview an exceptional person from the world of string playing, be they a virtuoso, a collector, philanthropist, or violin maker. Today I'm speaking to Ralph Kirschbaum, internationally renowned solo cellist and eminent teacher. Ralph also is the founder of two great cello festivals, the Manchester Cello Festival in the UK and the Piatigorsky Cello Festival in Los Angeles. Good morning in Los Angeles, Ralph. Um, I assume the sun is shining. Um, and um, I, my first question really is, have you got used to all the sunshine, because Manchester, where you were previously, is, is, is not renowned for that particular weather, is it?
1: <laughs> I, I think you could say that, uh, yeah, without any, any contradiction in mind. I, Of course, I never lived in Manchester. I, I spent a considerable amount of time there. But uh, London, yes, I lived 40 years in London. And I can only say I adjusted very quickly <laughs> to the change in climate here in Los Angeles. It is seductive. Uh, it's, we, we, we feel blessed, frankly, every day to get up. And, and well, I can't actually say that, honestly, because as you well know, there's a period of time when all that rain-free weather uh, has a toll to pay. Uh, when there are fires and so forth, and there have been fires very near to us. And, and that's a very frightening time of the year. And in, it's approaching now. But wow. you know aside from those natural phenomenon and of course the looming danger always there in the background of an earthquake we, we get small tremors from time to time just as a reminder and uh, so there are those natural phenomenon that that definitely give a character to this part of the world but yes the sunshine is seductive it is, wonderful to, to rise to that most mornings and to open the curtains and see the san gabriel mountains that that we have a view of out the back of our house and so forth yes
0: well whenever i speak whenever i speak to you on the phone i i, I always have that slight feeling of jealousy and knowing knowing what you've what you've got as opposed to what we've got but um th- thank you for just bringing it down a bit with the um the earthquakes and and, and the fires that makes me feel a, a bit better but um... yes exactly <laughs> but, the, no, but the... when I, Simon Simon I have to <laughs> yeah. say
1: when I call you sometimes you know about you know whatever it might be you you probably recall that sometimes you know, I, I'll say to you well Simon I woke up this morning I looked out the weather was overcast, there were drizzles of rain, and I thought of you. (laughs) That's that's right. (laughs) Because I do remember that weather all too well uh, for all those years in uh, in London. I mean, fortunately, there are so many redeeming aspects to being in a great city like London, but uh, perhaps that wasn't one of them.
0: (laughs) Well, what were the... I, I mean... The music, the musical culture, uh, okay, weather aside, the musical culture, the differences between the two countries, is there something you can define about it, about the London musical culture and the, uh, well, American um, or the European and the American? Is there a different philosophy, an approach to um, interpreting music or performing it?
1: Well, that's that's a profound question. Many great teachers who teach in America come from that European tradition. And they are passing on that tradition to their students. So you when one asks if there is a definable American quality, I I would say no. I I would say there are great musicians and there are not great musicians. And there are great musicians in America Many, as I say, having and, and as they've developed, having been at least exposed to some of the the important fundamental pillars of the European tradition, and and others who, by osmosis or their own beautiful musical instinct, have developed that into the artistic level that they've achieved, and. I, of course, grew up in America, and yet the, the preponderance of my career was in Great Britain and in Europe. So it, it works both ways. I think there's a cross-fertilization that's actually very healthy. There, there certainly, in Los Angeles, is a great respect for the European tradition. I sometimes, when I'm speaking to my students, I, I refer to... And and again, you you can't make stereotypes. But you know, an American orchestra, I think, basically is more accustomed to playing when the when the conductor's beat comes down to the specific point at the bottom of that beat, they play very precisely on on that point. A European orchestra, as you know, more, much more frequently is playing on the reaction to that beat, <clears throat> so that you know it. There's a a buoyancy, a bounce off of that beat that, that the orchestra breathes and responds to in that way. So, I mean, you know, I, I can't say that that in itself makes uh, a characterization of one versus the other. Uh, maybe I'll, I'll tell you a story that I, that I think addresses it. It certainly put it into some context for me. Many, many years ago, when I would give masterclasses primarily in Prussia Cove at the same time that Shandorweg was giving classes, you know, in Cornwall. And one summer, we were actually also giving courses at the same time in a small town in Switzerland, Lenk. Uh, and there was a lunch break. We were out on the veranda I had walked out later than Shandor, and he was already seated, just relaxing, taking in the sun before his afternoon classes. So I sat down next to him. Now, of course, here was a very distinguished musician, a great artist, you know, in in his 60s, and and here I was, this young American, you know, still in my late 20s, perhaps early 30s. And, you know, you, you didn't have small talk, at least I never found that I was comfortable having small talk with Shandor. But we were sitting there and we of course greeted one another. And at one point it just crossed my mind. And I said to him, Shandor, I'm just curious. What does it feel like having this stream of very, you know, gifted, you know, technically sort of supreme young violinists who who come flock to you to have study with you in Europe. And I have to say, he was well, he was certainly annoyed and and perhaps even a little bit angry. He, he sort of looked at me and he said, "Technique no maybe they had good mechanics, but technique this is what you grow with each day when you take your instrument and try to realize what." a composer has to say. And it's, you know, I, I, I fear, here I'm telling this story, I fear that it touches on a stereotype that I actually don't believe is true, that, that Americans are all about m- mechanics, about being digitally uh, in tune and, and on time, and et cetera, et cetera. And and that really is not a, a fair stereotype at all, but there was more emphasis in the training in, in those fundamental years for many of the young American musicians. Uh, I, I, I have to say in my case, maybe I was very fortunate, but the, the cello teachers I had were not of that ilk, but on being very precise, and and so forth. And so Shandor was drawing this distinction, which took on, I must say, real relevance. And all my students have heard this story so many times, and, and those who've also had master classes with me, when some years later in Prussia Cove, Shandor, Andras Schiff, and myself were going to give a performance of the ghost trio by Beethoven in one of the Maestri concerts. And was as is typical, you know, you come together a couple of days before the concert. You find time in, in your teaching schedule to rehearse. And anyway, we sat down for the first rehearsal. And we played the first bar, basically. And Shandor stopped. No! <laughs> you know, the A, when you play... We played like one usually hears you know, something like that. But he wanted that to be a transformative note, to have a different power, a different resonance. And we spent, I don't know, I'm from Texas, I tend to exaggerate things, but at, at least three minutes to get the character of that note that he wanted. And you couldn't just play with a nice, smooth, elegant technique. You had to find in, in the way you, even the way you held the bow, in, in my case, of course, for Andros, it was the, the articulation of that note. We kept searching for that quality that he was looking for. And that's, that's what he meant. <laughs> you know, it, it brought it to life, what he actually meant when he said what he said to me in length.
0: It's the nub of that so much... Uh performing is that balance between communicating what in a way what you want to say and, and what you want to get over to the audience yourself and, and, and but of course you've got the composer as well and, and we know well the composer comes first of course but we know performers who can perform remarkably effectively and remarkably well and communicate with an audience who don't always follow what the composer. Does and it's it's almost frustrating sometimes to hear somebody who can perform so um, convincingly, but off off piste, you know. Yes. And um, do you you I've heard you teach, and you always try and draw students back to the composer's intention. Um, And how does one? manage to balance that with because you're not all you know everybody's obviously not going to perform the same piece in the same way and yet ideally you're all trying to seek the truth of what the composer wants to communicate so how does that work how do you navigate that that balance
1: well for me and in my own teaching i i feel my most important role is to get a student to listen honestly. It's the easiest thing to imagine that you're doing something. And it's quite another thing to to listen with such concentration that that you really hear what you're doing. And, And that, of course, touches on everything. It touches on the control of the bow, the speed of the bow, sudden bulges in sound that you're kind of oblivious to because you're you know, you're you're listening to some larger uh, larger moment and, and not sufficiently focused on how you're actually creating that larger moment. So it's it's that kind of thing. if if I can get them to listen honestly, that's when I see the greatest progress begin with the student. And I can only point them in that direction. Of course there are things that that you can show that help them to, to gain that degree of control and uh, and mastery, ideally, of that box, in our case, we're cellists, so that box that's in front of us, to get them, in, in a sense, to forget that box and, and listen to the musical line. You know, it's, it's so interesting. I would say, and I, not that I've ever done a study exactly, but if... I ask a student to sing a phrase. I would say ninety-nine percent. I can think I can say safe, safely ninety-nine percent of the time they will sing it with a musical intent that's valid. But when I ask them to play that same phrase on on their instrument, oftentimes they're nowhere near what they sang.
0: That's interesting. Yes,
1: and and so to get them to. That's what I say, to listen, to listen with that kind of concentration. Uh, I, I think and that's the heart of it. I mean, as you say, quite rightly, there, there can be many different interpretations, certainly of a, of a great piece, and many of them valid. So it's—but there also can be interpretations that are invalid, and oftentimes, that's from omission, omission of this aspect of, of listening honestly to what they're doing.
0: Right. And I'm, I'm thinking of your, um, first of all, the Manchester cello festival, and now you have the, um, cello festival. And of course these great, you have the greatest cellists from all over the world coming along to play and give masterclasses. What, is there a characteristic that makes these players so successful? I mean, you, you see students studying and you can see somebody with a lot of talent, but not all of those make it to be very successful soloists and, and make a career out of it. So when you when you see people who have done that, is is there some characteristic in their personality and their playing that you can say, okay, that's... That's what they all have in common.
1: Yes. Yes. They all speak. They speak with a unique voice. They have something to say. And they say it from their experience and so forth. And they apply what I was just talking about. When you hear a great artist, you're drawn to that concentration that you feel emanating from them. As they explore whatever it is that they're playing, if somebody's just there in some anodyne way playing, even if they play every note absolutely in the right place and et cetera, et cetera, I think we we would probably all agree that it wouldn't be a compelling performance. Mm. But but you I know that when, when you line up, I mean you've been to so many of these festivals, and, and and I'm so appreciative of the support you've given to so many of these festivals, but. You line up 20 great cellists. They're all going to sit in a different way. They're in a slight way, or sometimes in an exaggerated way. We'll hold the bow differently. The angle of their left hand on the fingerboard will be a little different. They found a way to draw from that box and from those tools something that is compelling that speaks to us, that has real character, and that's what makes them the artists they are. Mm.
0: And for the, I, I think with the whole recording business, I, I I know that when i in the days when I played, that I would get very depressed if I'd practiced something for ages and missed some shift that I'd practice endlessly. And, and actually my attitudes have changed a bit over the years. Now, when, when I hear somebody that can play technically beautifully and, um, very perfectly, it's incredibly frustrating to realize they could do anything and yet almost choose not to not to play one phrase beautifully and and I, I think I'm much more willing these days to put up with um people's slight inadequacy well I wouldn't say inadequacies but but mistakes um just to hear something played beautifully well that's and, right um,
1: I I, I, that. I totally agree I totally agree and I've actually I've always been like that I remember having a discussion with Pierre Fournier who I just thought the world of. I I loved his playing, and I loved his sound. I loved his musicianship. And as it happened, we were both performing in Zurich at the same time. And I was playing, uh, I I believe it was C.P.E. Bach Concerto with the Zurich Chamber Orchestra, and he was performing Schumann Concerto with the Tonhalle, And we met up for lunch one day, and he was playing that night, and I was going to the concert. And You know, we were talking about various things. And then at the end, I said, I am so looking forward to hearing you tonight. And he looked at me and he said, why do you come to hear the old Fournier? It was in a way sad. And I looked at him and immediately said, because honestly, to hear you play one note, means more to me and touches me more profoundly than to hear many artists play hundreds of notes. He had that quality, just what you're talking about. And it's true, and I suppose it's true of most of us as we get over, you know, perhaps we're more fallible mechanically, as, as Vague would say, mm. but hopefully technically in the sense that he defined technique. We actually have more to say, and that's what I felt in in listening to a performance of Fournier. I wasn't there to hear and and score him on whether every note was precisely in the right place at the right time.
0: Yes. And, well, we touched on the festival and the great players that you, you have coming along, but, of course, this year, sadly, you had to cancel it and it was a huge shock. I know I, my flight's booked ready to come out and um, and goodness knows what you had organized in advance. And um, it's a real tragedy, but not as much of a tragedy as of course many people have had to suffer. But um, what are your plans now with the festival and, and how are people coping at the university?
1: Well, uh, firstly, I, I would say, You know, the fact that it was determined that the festival needed to be cancelled just uh, four days, actually, before the opening concert, uh, with everything poised, uh, three years of preparation, and not solely, of course, on my part, but by a whole team of people who had, you know, worked passionately to to put together this event, Uh, that was... It wasn't I can't say it was a shock, because I knew from the staff within the university that this was a possibility. You know, that it it was mooted already a week earlier that this could happen, that nobody knew. And and then when I got the call on that Monday evening from the dean, we talked about it and and at one point I said to him, his name is Rob Cutieta. So I said, Rob even i appreciate that there are things in life more important than a cello festival and we know each other very well rob and i and he he chuckled a little bit and he said ralph i never thought i would hear, hear those words come from your lips <laughs> but it's true i mean you know so many people were i mean the the artists were absolutely amazing in their support and their expressions of you know, disappointment and for the, you know, for themselves and not being able to experience the festival and for me. And I, of course, was deeply appreciative of that. But listen, in comparison to what people have had to go through in these four months since then, and indeed, we will continue to go through in the months ahead uh, until we actually get a handle on, on this virus and this pandemic. It. It was a minor thing. And there have been, I mean, of course, subsequent to that, as, as you know, we all know in the music world, festival after festival was canceled or postponed or whatever. Mm. Uh, obviously, my entire summer uh, was, was basically canceled. And, and that was the case for practically every colleague I've spoken to. But I mean, as far as the university, we continued, as did most institutions, as best we could, and we continued through Zoom. Uh, I, I became one of those Zoom babies, uh, dashing from one Zoom lesson to a Zoom meeting. I mean, I, I seemed to be even busier during those succeeding eight weeks than I'd been the whole year, uh, because not only were we attempting to get through that semester, but we were attempting to put in place plans for the future. And here we are in mid-July, and some of those plans are in place, but subject as they are everywhere in the world to this virus. And as the virus escalates, some of the plans that people have been putting in place uh, with great determination and great care for everyone concerned, those plans almost daily get changed and altered. But we're poised to, to return In August, the timing of the the school year has been altered so that the first semester, it's on a semester system here, is going to run from the middle of August up until Thanksgiving, which is the last Thursday in November. Normally, the school year goes until the middle of the first semester, excuse me, goes until the middle of December, but it's been condensed out of respect for what everyone expects this virus to do during the flu season, which is to to grow and develop and, and so forth. So if we can get in that first semester, have a, a worthwhile experience for the students and everybody is putting in every possible effort to see that that's gonna be the case, uh, we can have a productive few months and then the students will be home for two months, well, practically two months during the height of what is expected to be this quote, so-called second wave of the virus. Mm-hmm. So, you know, we're, we're all in this position. I, you know, I, I have a, a wonderful student who went home to Seoul in South Korea. Of course, like most people returning to any country from abroad in either direction, having to quarantine for 14 days when he got there. But he was actually scheduled to play a, a concert with orchestra in Seoul in, in early June, uh, you know, with a restricted audience. And when I spoke to him the day after the performance, he said, well, it got changed at the last moment. There was the orchestra, you know, I did play the concerto, but there was no one in the hall. It was determined that just in those last two or three days, it was determined that it wasn't safe to have even a quarter of the hall filled with people. So it was an empty hall. So everybody is adjusting to those realities. And I must say, I... I take my hat off to so many of my colleagues who've done so many creative things to, to keep performance alive through live streamed concerts and, and you know, bringing you know, their, their students together, encouraging them to do the same. And so I, I think it is quite remarkable. Music is alive. And, and of course, the one thing we can, we can all appreciate, it's not going to die. Music, music is going to be there, and we can only do our best to see that we're going to be there to help, help that process along when things return to some degree of normality.
0: And and they will, won't they? It's it has been so-called classical music um it's been um the perfect storm isn't it because you've got international travel has stopped i know this with our own violin business Uh, suddenly there's no international travel which the music business relies on completely plus large gatherings of people plus the fact that of course the audience is generally older than um would be going to a theater for example so it's it's somehow I, it, and it happened so suddenly, didn't it? But as you say, there's been great imagination shown, and um, I, I'm sure it will return just as quickly as it um, has suffered. Um, yeah. But your cello festival, um, talking of returning, um, the the. What what's the plan at the moment? Do you do you can you formulate a plan at the moment, or are you waiting to see how things work? Yeah, I think
1: the brief answer is no. It, it's I can't formulate a plan at this point. Uh, there are other, as you know, here in Los Angeles with the Piatigorsky Festival, the the other entity of great importance, our partner institution, the Los Angeles Philharmonic, are dealing with their own trials and tribulations, as is practically every major orchestra in the world now, uh, in in how they keep their orchestra functioning at a time when they are not permitted to have live concerts. And they won't be permitted to have live concerts, certainly at the very earliest into the beginning of 2021. So uh, I haven't even broached the subject with them yet because I know they've had their hands full. I know they are a very enthusiastic partner with the Piotr Festival, and they will be in the future. But whether the reincarnation, if I can call it that, of the festival that wasn't, I've actually said to many of my friends, this was the 12th international festival that, that I sort of shepherded through and directed, and maybe in the historical annals, it'll be the most well-known for the fact that it didn't happen. Uh, it's, it's kind of interesting phenomenon to think of that. But there will be a reincarnation that I can assure you there is the will certainly on my part. There is the will on the part of uh, the USC Thornton School of Music, which is the home of the festival. And I feel quite confident it will be the will of the Los Angeles Philharmonica as well. But whether that time, the appropriate time is going to be sometime in 2022 which would be absolutely the earliest that it could be or sometime even into 2023 that that remains to be seen
0: yeah well i know everybody's going to be incredibly excited to experience it when it happens um ralph we we can't leave our chat without at least um touching on cellos and um you play on a wonderful montagnana for those that don't play maybe a cello or a wonderful violin, what does it give you playing on an instrument like um, a, a Montignano?
1: Well, I'm going to tell you another story to answer that question. And then I'll, and then I'll tell you more personally for my own part. But uh, a very dear friend of mine, a great artist, a great musician, Miriam Fried. This goes back. You would actually know better than I do, because this is, involves an instrument that she got from J and A Beer. Uh, some, I think it's about thirty years ago, and she she was actually in your shop with the instrument, and she called me, and she said, "Can I come up to to your house? I, I want you to hear this instrument." I I think it wasn't it a Strad that she bought. Either, uh, either yeah. a Strad or a Guarnerius, but I think it was a Strad. Yeah, yeah. But she came up and she walked in, barely a hello, walked into the music room, opened up the case, took her violin out, and she played the beginning of the slow movement of the Tchaikovsky Violin Concerto. And when she finished that opening phrase, she stopped. And she just looked at me. And she had tears in her eyes. Now, this was an artist in the prime of her career as a soloist. She played with most of the great orchestras of the world, et cetera, et cetera, and she just looked at me and she said, I had long since given up hope that I could ever play the phrase like that. It was one of the most touching moments, I tell you. And I think really that says it all. You know, what difference does it make? That's the difference it makes. It's not even a question, as you know, of these, they've had these testings of instruments. Uh, I think there was one very famous one in Carnegie Hall where some of the great violinists were taking turns playing great instruments and and more modern instruments on the stage. And it wasn't always the great instrument that the person in the hall who was listening or the people in the hall uh, chose for the sound that was the most present or whatever. It's what it does for you, the artist, what it opens up, what it allows you. I mean, going back to what I said earlier in terms of what do you hear? Miriam had always heard the phrase in a particular way, and she had played it. I heard her perform it. She played it beautifully, but it didn't touch her in the way that she couldn't realize it to the full in the way she could with this great instrument in her hands. And, and that's the difference. And, uh, I believe me with this great Montagnana from 1729 that I've now had for, well, since 1973. So we can do the mass. That's almost 50 years. Uh, I bless every day. I know how lucky I am to have that instrument and, and what it gives to me uh, as a musician and hopefully for the audiences who hear me when I'm performing as an artist. But for me, it's, uh, it's, it's one of the great blessings to, as a musician to have that opportunity.
0: Well, Ralph, thank you so much. It's always a pleasure to chat with you and um, I've, greatly enjoyed this i have i have too
1: and i'll say i mean because you can just cut all this out that i'm saying to you now yeah but it is very skillful i have to say how you've navigated the last 30 some odd minutes and avoided getting a joke from me <laughs>
0: <laughs> thank you so much again to the inimitable ralph kirschbaum this podcast is brought to you by j J&A beer and the Beers International Violin Society. If you would like more information, please visit beers.com.